Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head, I'm Michael Bartz. My guest today is Julianne Francois Gerber. Julianne Francois is an Associate Professor of Environment and Development at Erasmus University Rotterdam's International Institute of Social Studies. Professor Gerber's research focuses on the political economy of sustainability, exploring questions surrounding ownership, credit, debt, environmental justice, anti-debt movements, degrowth, and eco-psychology, with a particular geographical focus on Western Europe, India, and Bhutan. Julian Francois has held positions at the Royal University of Bhutan and Harvard University, and from 2018 to 2019 was granted an ISRF fellowship to work on debt at the Department of Anthropology of the London School for Economics, sponsored by David Graeber. Welcome to In Over My Head, Julian. Thanks for having me. While looking into degrowth, I couldn't help but consider the role debt plays in our modern society. From the individual level to companies and countries, it seems like everyone owes more and more. This has implications for us and the environment, and I'm wondering about alternatives. You study debt from a degrowth perspective, so I'm really looking forward to talking with you. I think to start, it might be helpful to explain the relationship between credit and growth. How are these things connected? Yeah, it makes a, a lot of, of sense to start to try to clarify this. I think credit is really this engine of growth. It's this key factor behind this growth imperative of capitalism. This can be understood in different ways, right? To start with, credit fuels growth by bypassing savings, right? You don't need to save a lot of money patiently before you can invest, right? You can immediately use credit to engage in, in economic activities. This is well known. But then credit is also a source of pressures, of new pressures that will foster growth. And this happens mostly via debt, right? And debt is, in a way, this dark side of credit. Debt can be a huge source of pressures. Like most debtors, they not only have this pressure to pay back the, the loan in, its, in itself, right, the principal, but also the interest on top of it. So they have to kind of make more money to pay both. And this is no small things because uh, very often uh, you engage something, some property items as a, as, a, as a guarantee, as a security, as a collateral that you may lose if you don't pay back. So credit and debt represent this very powerful device that pushes people but also companies, government, right, into more growth. And in no way this pressure is somehow diminishing, right? It's kind of the contrary taking place these days. And uh, we live in a very financialized uh, uh, world with all kinds of credits and debt mechanisms that have been developed and that continue to be developed. And very recently I saw this uh, report by the IMF that was uh, saying that right now public and private debts, they, they have reached world record height in human history, something like $230 trillion or something. So something absolutely unheard of. And this is very bad news for sustainability, I think. It's bad news ecologically, but also economically and socially because it just doesn't, it doesn't create the right signals, right? And so... Yeah, we, we have this huge pressure for growth exactly when we need it least, right? Given the climate uh, emergency and the ecological crisis at large. So in a way, we could say that this, this is one of the big contradictions of our time. We have this pressure for growth exactly when we should go post-growth. 
Yeah. And I think what came to mind for me when reading your research was it's, this isn't necessarily just individuals spending money on their credit cards. Like the engine of growth and credit is pushing industries in order to extract more resources, right? Like that is part of the reason why they're forced to grow, like you said, because they're trying to keep up with their, their debtors, right? So like how specifically does debt affect the environment? So yeah, it, it affects the environment in in many ways. Of course, you can we can imagine that this pressure for growth tend to contradict right uh, ecological limits out there. Again, this is valid at different levels, also at the level of governments that have little choice but to engage into more extractive industries, right, in order to pay to pay back those loans. At the individual level, it looks a bit like that, right? You take out a loan, you have to start to think in a new way. You start to look at the world in a new way, right? In order to secure this timely repayment. Of course, to different degrees, depending on your own like class location. But still, you know, at different degrees, these pressures, they cut across uh, classes. You have to start to evaluate things in monetary term, right? You have to think in cost benefit terms. You have to produce commodities because commodities will generate money, right? You focus on profits or growth because you have on top of the principal to pay the, for the interest. And you look for innovations, but not any kind of innovation, very specific kinds, the kinds that cut costs, right? And that will facilitate uh, your your debt repayment. Of course, I'm a bit exaggerating everything, but what it's important is to look at this new logic where the environment can really only be like low priority. So it's not because the capitalists are greedy or bad, right? But you're caught into a logic that pushes you to think in a certain way and that does not like encourage you to uh, to think in, in ecological terms. I saw this really interesting report by the, the Canadian National Farmers Union of 2010. I don't remember exactly the, the exact wording, but they were crystal clear, the, the Canadian farmers. They were saying the debt we have, they push us to make choices, you know, based on short-term cash flow rather than on the need of the soils, you know, the need of fertility, the need of the environment. And in the same text, they say that this was not always the case, right? Farms used to be traditionally places where you had some kind of long-term thinking, some kind of holistic thinking, right? But somehow debt dissolves all of that, right? And through this document, it was so clear, right, that there is a clash between indebtedness and, and sustainability. Yeah, I think that's a good point about how it changes your thinking because people might care about the environment. But then, yeah, if suddenly you're being forced like those farmers to have these monocrops because that's what makes the most money or that's what's paying off those debts. Suddenly, yeah, you're limiting your choices in what you could even grow. So that that's a really, really interesting example. What comes to mind when you have that example is, you know, you think about people pursuing certain careers or certain work. And ideally, you'd think that, okay, they want to do this because they love, let's say, farming or whatever the thing they choose to do. But when debt is such a part of our lives, it seems like, like you said, it really becomes about what makes the most money and what is, like you said, those, those short-term profits. I think that's really interesting. I think that's part of the reason why we are in the climate crisis, right? Because now we're focusing on what makes the most money now versus what is a more long-term sustainable solution, right? Right, exactly. This relationship to time, right? I think it's very important to realize that like 
the temporality we're working in is we're working with in, in in capitalism is largely determined by the kind of contractual arrangements we're into and this is very striking with uh, capitalism as a debt economy i think this typical short-term time horizon that explains this proverbial short-termism right of capitalist thinking and this has like nothing to do with uh seasonal temporalities or ecological temporalities, biological rhythms. And, and then if you combine that with this uh, highly developed debt economy, like the one we're in right now, and then fossil fuels, you put the two together, you really have something explosive. And I think you have this great acceleration. And this great acceleration is this period of the Anthropocene we're in right now. It has been called the great acceleration because many key ecological and economic indicators are just booming exponentially and, and going faster and fast, faster like GDP, different types of emissions and pollution or extractive activities, even the temperature. So I think debt and fossil fuels ha have a lot to do with this, uh, with this great acceleration. And is that because there's just so much more potential with fossil fuels? Why, why has there been maybe a shift because of that? Because of, I think the, that's in the in the nature of fossil fuels. They they allow to be used at any time during the night in series. They really allow industrialization, right? You could not do that with uh, biotic resources, right? Biotic resources they have to somehow match natural temporalities, the sun uh, to do photosynthesis and. And you just cannot keep the same pace with an economy based on biotic resources. These are ideas that were developed by uh, Nicolas Georgescu Rogan, who was one of the fathers of uh, degrowth thinking. And uh, for him, and, and I think it's a good point, he said that at the end of the day, this fossil fuel era will only be a parenthesis in human history because they're non-renewable, non right? So, so at some point, we'll have to go back to economies based on, on biotic resources with, with a much slower pace of life. Oh, of course, yeah. And I think I find debt so interesting, like we've been talking about how, you know, it's not that people don't want to slow down or companies don't necessarily want to grow. It seems like when it comes to debt, you know, it really forces people to make decisions or maybe companies to have certain incentives that they maybe wouldn't align with their values. Something that comes to mind with that is kind of how debt affects our community. How does debt affect our communities? That makes a lot of sense. And it's a question that is rarely asked, actually. And there's not so much uh, like research being done on that. I think the pressure, the pressures I was mentioning, they definitely also affect communities and in many ways. And, and just to give you a few examples, debt is well known as a mechanism that creates what we call social differentiation, right? In a given community, some people using debt may be unsuccessful and lose the land that they have used as collateral and become landless. Some other may be very successful and become entrepreneur, flourishing entrepreneurs. And so it tends to create inequalities within communities, right? To start with. And then it's also a factor behind migration. That's documented. A lot of people migrate to find jobs elsewhere, to the cities elsewhere because of debt levels. And this is obviously not good for community relations. Another factor is the destruction of the commons. In many parts of the world, you still have like a very vigorous commons, common property, but you cannot get credit based on a common, right? You cannot use it as a collateral. So the only thing you can do is to divide the common into individual property parcels 
that then you can perhaps use as like a security if you want to get credit. So if you need credit, there is a pressure against the commons, which again, you know, undermines community. And then the most obvious one is the individualizing effects of uh, of the contract, right? You you take a loan as a person, not as a group usually. And then it's a very individualized way of uh, engaging in economic activities, right? It's not a collective or a community-oriented way. These are all factors that, that clearly, I think, contribute to impact community bonds. Yeah, and I think that idea of the commons is so interesting. I know that comes up quite a bit in, in degrowth literature. And yeah, especially when it comes to debt, that makes a lot of sense that, you know, maybe individually you might be accumulating more debt than you would if you were in a community because you have more resources to pool, whether that's time, whether that's equipment for, let's say, again, farming, whatever it might be. It seems like, yeah, the commons helps in people perhaps not being in as much debt. Is, is that correct to say? I think it could very, very well. Yeah, the commons could be like a, a an anti debt measure. It's a particularly painful fact, you know, that they're being dissolved because people elsewhere need access to credit. There are other activities that could be mentioned as like anti debt, but that that's that's one to keep the commons alive, right? As a source of uh, of resources, as a source of uh, raw materials. Agroecology would be another example. Typically, agroecology precisely doesn't require a lot of entrants, inputs. So if you're serious with your agroecological practices, you don't get into debt, you know, unlike uh, cash crops. And sure, yeah. And I think it's kind of the, the whole system. Maybe something I think might be interesting to address is why people borrow money. My understanding, it's not always just that they have a credit card and they want to go on a trip somewhere. There are larger factors at play, right? No, absolutely. And I think it's useful there to have a like a global view, maybe not just like a view like restricted to uh, to the West, because that is also a global problem. No? And if we look at it, we realize that like a lot of people, they borrow just to buy food, for example. And you mentioned cash crops before as not being, you know, the food you would have every day. And, and I think that's very true. And uh, this changes also the former logic of agriculture. So now farmers, they have to borrow to buy food, which is, which is kind of paradoxical, yeah, but it's, it's true in many parts of the world. And traditionally, you had polycultures and polycultures were precisely designed to provide food all along the year. But even there, I must say that if you had a bad harvest, you would still, you know, knock on the door of the moneylender. And so that has for a long time made uh, peasants very... Uh, prone to indebtedness. But there are other reasons uh, why people borrow. And historically, an interesting one is, uh, is related to the tax system. A lot of people took their first loan historically to pay taxes. And that was a key way by which the colonizers were able to force people into capitalism, into the market economy, right? Suddenly they had to pay tax. If they couldn't, they had to borrow. And there the worldview changes and you have to engage in monetary activity and you cannot just live, you know, your life outside, outside the market or with minimal interaction with the market. Paradoxically, today, it's a bit the reverse. Today, you get into debt to pay less tax, right? For example, if you take a mortgage, then you may have a tax reduction. So it's also changing, but uh, tax is a very, it's a very important factor. Then there are other reasons like uh, life cycle events, for example, right? In the West, typically to purchase a house. But for example, in South Asia, weddings can be a source of huge debt that are a burden on the shoulders of the young couple or the, or the families, you know, for decades. 
And of course, funeral sickness, whenever the welfare state doesn't do its job. Yeah, I think that that life event thing is so interesting because perhaps some people might have a, a smaller wedding because it would save money. But I feel like there's also, especially culturally, maybe that pressure to have a big wedding, like you said. You know, so I'm wondering where does kind of that cultural norm play a part in, in our debt cycle? There's a huge cultural component to debt for sure, right? There are so many things we have to buy culturally, right? For cultural reasons and, and also for psychological reasons. For example, all the category of conspicuous consumption, right? Of positional goods, which are basically goods that like show our status or give signals, right? To the community, like a fancy car and so on. And but these overall, they're still kind of rare. I think it would be really a mistake to think that these are the main reasons for the state of over-indebtedness that we find now so generalized. Yeah, that's a good point that it's not necessarily entirely about that. And, and that's why I appreciate that historical example and talking about agriculture and, and other cultures that gives you more of a, a global perspective on why people borrow money. And, you know, I, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but the, the class struggle in the world of debt and some of the research you've done is on actually conflicts that have come up in regard to debt. So maybe tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so indeed, I did some research on these uh, anti-debt conflicts, and um, I was uh, reading uh, David Graeber's book, The Debt the First uh, 5,000 Years, and uh, he made many very ambitious uh, claims about uh, the extent of anti-debt conflicts. And so I was like, okay, I really need to look into that. And I contacted him, and he was very encouraging. And then I joined him for a while at, at uh, LSE in London to work uh, precisely on that. And uh, well, it turns out that uh, these conflicts has, have really witnessed an exponential rise since the 80s, so since the, the beginning of this financialization phase of capitalism. There are many well-known examples in the U.S., right? The Occupy Debt, the Strike Debt movement. In Spain, there are a very powerful, very well-organized movement against mortgage, for example. India is a hot spot of anti-debt conflicts also. There are anti-debt, anti-student debt movement in the UK, but also in Chile, in South Africa, in, in different parts of the world. So there is this exponential rise in the since the 80s, and if this trend continues, it could really become like a, a very, a very powerful political force in the 21st century. I think that an increasing number of people are are fed up with with uh, what has been called. Um, the debt fair state, right? It's this uh, state that have public services that are so bad, you know, that people have no choice but to take out uh, loans, right? To pay for medical bills or education. Some theorists have even argued that in this current phase of capitalism, the, the class struggle, if you want, has really taken now this creditor versus debtor nature much more than the, the classical clash between employers and employee. So I think it's a very interesting idea. And uh, it's true that today not many people would like describe themselves as belonging to the working class. They would much easier recognize that they are debtors and potentially more ready to organize around debt, you know, than around like labor issues i don't but since we were talking about degrowth i think i think it's worth mentioning that uh, this anti-debt conflict they could very much become a, an ally to the to the degrowth movement because at the end of the day if you're interested in degrowth you, you also have to tackle this debt issue and, and a synonymous of degrowth would be deaccumulation. so it's super intimately linked with the debt economy right if you criticize uh, the growth uh, imperative 
Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, um, and with these anti-debt movements, I remember something in your paper, it mentioned that it was also connected to those social safety nets, right? When those weren't in place, then debt would go up and, and there would be more problems, right? Absolutely, yeah. And this is very much linked also to this uh, attacks on the welfare state, right? Dismantles this like sta- safety net. But I, I don't want also to be necessarily too state-centric because uh, also communities, you know, used to provide these safety nets. And uh, yeah, communities are also uh, dissolving, right? There is a, a good book by uh, Stephen Marglin uh, that says that economists have been so blind to communities, right? They, much of like theorizing in economics is around either the state or the individual. And we forget what's in between, right? And so much is happening in between. I think today, probably the most interesting experiments are happening in between, right? In the communities. And that's where also we find alternatives to debt and mobilizing around debt. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Do you have some examples of communities having alternatives to debt? There's a Spanish platform of people affected by uh, mortgages. That's the translation. And uh, it's really community-based. They have groups of support groups where they would uh, invite people who are facing debt issues, you know, uh, support them emotionally, legally, and also from an activist perspective. So they would prevent seizure of property uh, physically by being there, so occupying the land. And, and they prevented like that many, uh, many... Uh, confiscation of houses, uh, several thousand in, in Spain. And, and one of the early organizers actually became the mayor of Barcelona, Alda Colau. She tried to maintain that. It was not always easy then to translate that into uh, policies at the municipality level. But um, another example, uh, quite a controversial one, would be this zero budget farming in India. That's an entire farmers movement that is called zero budget because they try to go without debt. And so they put forward agroecological techniques to make sure there is no need to go to the creditor. And I'm saying controversial because they have also a right-wing side, you know, where they glorify Hindu science and... uh, Things like that that have been also criticized by others, but um, I'm also not interested in purity, right? There is always uh, the perfect movement doesn't exist. And, uh, and I still think that uh, the zero budget farming is, is doing a lot of things uh, very interesting that uh, can be used also in other parts of the world. Have they had any successes with this zero budget farming? Yes, absolutely. Yes. And this is also quite well documented. And then, of course, the right wing, the current right wing government of India is very happy about that and is trying to support it. But leaving that aside, you know, if you look at the at the actual results on the ground, it's apparently uh, quite successful and they're, they're, they're able to have a really decent uh, yields and, uh, and, and, and production level with uh, like basically zero agrochemicals and artificial inputs. Yeah, and it seems like, like you mentioned, it's that's coming from more of a right-wing side, which I find interesting. And like you talked about, people are not identifying as workers, more as debtors. And it seems like with degrowth and even the environmental movement, people are focusing around justice as well and how that kind of brings in different viewpoints and, and different groups for a kind of a common goal, right? Do you see debt as part of that equation? That is a tricky one, you know, because uh, I was going to say that, you know, that's like uh, you have labor union, but you still have very few debtors union. 
but it's something that it's a new and promising form of raising awareness and uh, taking action collectively. But on the other hand, it's true that there is a subjective side to, to debt that like very often prevents mobilizing, right? It's sometimes associated with, uh, or not sometimes, very often associated with shame and uh, with failure and uh, it's something you don't talk about and so a lot of people struggling with that the last thing they would do is organize right but i think that's this is changing and that's the point i was trying to make in in this paper i wrote on anti-debt conflicts right i think this is this this subjectivity of that is changing and now more and more people are connecting the dots and realizing that no it's not just you know or their own like individual responsibility it's a system that like also pushed them into into debt because public services were not available because education is too expensive and and so on and so forth so it could be a great door, right, to start to question, you know, the type of uh, organization of the economy we have. Whether it is today the case, I'm not sure yet, you know, but, uh, but it's something that could appear in the coming years. Yeah, and I find that idea of, you know, shame quite interesting when we're talking about debt. I think about on the individual level, yeah, about maybe just talking about money and finances with friends and family and, and maybe coworkers or something. I feel like it's one of the things we don't talk about. It's very private. It's it's very personal. And I wonder, do you think if we talked about it more openly and more objectively, do you think that would change our relationship to debt? I think it would very much, yeah. And there's actually very moving stories of people like, quote unquote, coming out, you know, and saying, yes, I'm indebted. Yes, I'm struggling. And things that were absolutely unthinkable, you know, in the past. And uh, I think debtors union could provide that space also, you know, to share more on our situations, on the choice we have to make. And in a similar way, right, like also the taboo on salaries and wages also could be broken as well. Some people have said that this is a crucial aspect of the ideological class struggle also, right? To instill this feeling of shame and, and silence. And so to mobilize against indebtedness requires some kinds of shift in consciousness somehow or awakening. I like the idea of awakening. If I did not believe in that, I would not, I would not do these kinds of work, right? It sounds religious so, and maybe to some extent it is, I don't know. But there is really something like that that has to take place. That's interesting. Tell me more about this awakening. How would you describe that? Yeah, it's about realizing one's uh, situation and in the kind of ties, right? We're like, we are in and differentiate between those ties, the one we want to keep and the one we don't need. It's about going beyond, you know, what is being taught every day in the media. It's about questioning that. I think it's so easy, right, to fall into some kind of like dominant narratives and to uh, and to have uh, one's like horizon being narrowed down to something so little, right? There is so much room to to think, you know, the economy differently out there, and that's what I was trying to do also in the article you uh, you read on on credit uh, for post growth future and. There's a richness of theories there of people coming up with very interesting ideas, right? Sometimes with amazing results on the ground and that are still largely forgotten. And instead, we always come with the same recipes and the same kind of thinking and feeling stuck there. But uh, that's where history and the history of experiments are so telling, I think, and so eye-opening that, no, there are many possibilities out there. 
if we're really serious about the degrowth alternative, right, we have to look at the entire monetary system. And this is so because it's very difficult to distinguish, right, the monetary system from the credit system. If you use uh, national currencies, the two are very much overlap, right? Because modern money is basically a liability. It's a debt, right? Uh, of an issuer and typically a bank, a private bank. So today we have like this huge amount of money that is like created as debt by banks out of nothing really. So by that, I mean not backed by any com commodity like gold or silver. And the key point there is just to say that like these debts and all the pressures that they create, right, they're like inherent in the current monetary system. And it's a very worrying fact. But then many people have proposed alternative. And like one of the early ones was uh, this like decaying money. And it was proposed by, by Silvio Gezel. And Gezel was a brilliant economist. He was a renegade economist. And his basic idea was to say, uh, we should not allow like people to just accumulate money, right? And thereby creating an artificial scarcity, but we should allow money to uh, circulate much more freely. And for that, he said, why don't we launch like paper currency and to which to this paper, we would have to add a stamp regularly in order to keep it valid. In a way, it was a kind of negative interest rate. In his mind, it was a way to uh, to make money just like other physical commodities, like food or clothes. It would go bad, basically, right? It would go bad with time. So you had little choice but to use it and make it like circulate. And this is, of course, completely at odd with the current systems where money creates money and you hoard it and you get more money via interest and so on. And if you start to take this idea of decaying money seriously, the entire logic of the capitalist systems is, is destabilized in very interesting ways. For example, banks would have to completely, you know, rethink what is considered like rational or, or economic. But whether this would be compatible with degrowth is another question. And uh, I have also some, some doubt about it. But, uh, but I think it's, it's one of those like very interesting alternatives that, that should be taken seriously. And it's not that, that it was never applied also. And there was a, a famous example there that is like very often quoted because it's so striking. Uh, it happened in, in Austria in the 30s in this uh, village called uh, Vurgel. And they took this idea seriously. They had their decaying money system and they managed to tackle a, a really impressive number of problems. They redressed the, these uh, high levels of unemployment. They repaved the streets. They rebuilt the, the water system. I think they even... They built houses and a bridge and so on. And it was called the Virgil Miracle. And so not unsurprisingly, many villages and towns wanted to copy that. And there were about 200 towns in Austria that really wanted to do the same. And it posed a huge threat to the central bank of Austria because it would take a lot of power from it, right? Basically, people self-organizing and doing their own money and having their own system. You know, what would be the purpose of the central government, of central banks then? And so it didn't take long for... Uh, the Supreme Court of Austria to just consider a criminal offense, right, to issue local currency. And yeah, I think it's a, it's a very interesting example, right, that sees this weird dialectics between the grassroots and government, right? Sometimes the grassroots can, can be extremely creative, but then hits, you know, in the, on, on limits imposed by the government. And sometimes we need public services uh, also perhaps organized at the, at the governmental level. So it's, a, it's always a tricky dialectic.
I appreciate that example. It's really, really interesting. But yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that it was shut down by the Supreme Court because it sounds like it made a lot of progress. And, and yeah, even just getting people to think differently about money in the system. And actually that came up with uh, social credit as well, if I remember that paper correctly, right, with the uh, political movement. Yes, exactly. Social credit is another of those uh, examples of an alternative to the current debt-based monetary system. And it's also very largely forgotten today. And maybe I can just say a few words about it. So it was uh, launched by a, a British engineer called uh, D.H. Douglas, and he was really the pioneer of this social credit movement. The entire movement started with this paradox that people did not have enough money to buy what they had produced, right, somehow. And so there was some kind of contradiction, that's what Douglas noted, right, between the people's lack of purchasing power and the abundance of goods out there. And he noticed that if you take all the salaries, all the dividends in capitalism as a whole, right, it would not be equal to uh, the total cost of all the goods and services produced in a week. So there was a problem there. And so he came up with a number of uh, interesting proposals. And one of them was uh, to democratize uh, access to credit because he realized that most of this power was in the in the hands of uh, of banks, and that maybe requires a little parenthesis because I think I think banks are really extraordinary institutions. Sometimes their their power is so big that it becomes invisible. So it's so like under our eyes that we stop like seeing it. But banks really they they have such a strategic role in capitalism, right? They really decide who will get a loan, who will not, what industries are to be developed, which ones are not, right? So they are, our societies like entrust them with this huge power to decide really where are we going and who is going where and stuff. And so when you realize that these, these organizations, banks are largely undemocratic and like uh, motivated by private profit, it becomes like a bit of a problem, right? To give them so much power. And that's, that's something that uh, Douglas saw uh, very, very clearly. And so he said, uh, we need to have a, a kind of universal basic income. And so that, that's like a very important idea. He really pioneered. And today it's very much on the agenda of the degrowth movement. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's UBI comes up quite a bit in degrowth and, and just generally it seems like more in the news. And one interesting little piece of history I found when reading your one paper was that actually a social credit government was elected in Alberta at one time. Yes, no, absolutely. That was in the in the 30s. At that time, it was a major political movement all around the world. And it, it's still alive today. It's very marginal, but it's still alive. And Alberta was perhaps the only place where they actually took power. And uh, there was a social credit government there that lasted for quite some time, the Social Credit League. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, they were not really able to implement, you know, Douglas's idea. That at some point, they tried to start some what they call the prosperity certificate. And this was uh, based on uh, Douglas's idea that we should have a ticketing system, right, that would uh, match salaries with the cost of what is actually produced at all times. And for him, this was a, a kind of non-capitalist way of generating prosperity for all. It was a very powerful idea, but very much anti-capitalist, right? And that would be a complete uh, change of monetary system. And that's what the Albertans, you know, tried to do. But then the measure was quickly uh, disallowed again by the Supreme Court. So exactly the same scenario as in uh, Virgil in Austria. And what's interesting is that, or maybe uh, 
a bit strange, but this social credit movement in Alberta also transformed into a pretty conservative movement. And uh, so it becomes more and more conservative with time and less and less anti-capitalist. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate that example, obviously, because I live in Alberta, but just that idea of looking back at history and realizing that, yeah, maybe things actually were different and how possibly they could be that way again if we just shift our mindset, right? I agree. Yeah, at some point, it was a very creative place there and very avant-garde. So, Julian, this has been interesting. Um, you know, this show is about empowering citizens to take action on the climate crisis. And so when it comes to debt and the environment, what can people do to have an impact? Yes, that's a very good question. And of, of course, also a difficult one. I would say that like one easy thing to do or one first thing to do is to start playing with this debt lens to look at the economy and its problems, right? And suddenly, like, many things start to become clearer somehow, right? Look at things around us in terms of debt and, and so who is impacted, why, and so on, and what's the cost and why are we thinking the way we think and so on and so forth. And then very concretely, I think we'll have to organize, right, collectively. And I think we, we talked briefly about debtors' union and I still see uh, this as something that could be done much more. I'm considering starting one here in my neighborhood in, in Amsterdam because it happens that the Dutch households, for example, are the most indebted household in continental Europe. And this is so because of the cost of mortgages that are huge in this country. And then from a degrowth perspective also, there will be little other options, but to cancel debts, you know, whenever it releases the growth, in, the pressure of the growth imperative. And I think large-scale debt cancellations uh, will be on the agenda of many, many groups and even political parties pretty soon, right? I'm talking about student debts, mortgage, farmers' debts, you know, but also public debts of municipalities or, or debts of uh, countries of the global south. And then what can be done also is to promote all kinds of like exchanges and production that are debt-free. And we mentioned agroecology as an example, but mutual credit also is is a, is an option or UBI as we as we were saying. These are all very potent devices, you know, that prevent people from falling into into the debt trap. And then we didn't get a chance to mention it a lot, but the the ecological debt as well, right? Since the show is interested in climate change, also, well, the the climate debt or the ecological debt that the rich countries owe to the rest of the world needs to stop and need to be repaid in one way or another. And uh, and if some pressure comes from uh, social movements, that's I think it will it will be the way to get this idea much more widespread. Well, that's very helpful advice, Julian. And overall, this has been a very rich conversation. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Michael. Well, that was my conversation with Julian Francois. I think the thing that stood out for me the most was just realizing the role that debt plays in our society and thinking more about alternatives and talking about it. Well, that's all for me. I'm Michael Bartz. Here's to feeling a little less in over our heads when it comes to saving the planet. We'll see you again soon. In Over My Head was produced and hosted by Michael Bartz in partnership with Environment Lethbridge. Original music by Gabriel Thane. If you would like to get in touch, email info at inovermyheadpodcast.com. I'm trying to save the planet. Oh, will someone please save me?